First Corinthians 6, 1 through 11, the title of my message, and such were some of you, one of the most wonderful phrases in all the Bible. Um, my wife, Deborah, um, loves courtroom shows, TV courtroom shows. Anybody like those? Anybody? Oh, yeah, lots of you. Okay. Her favorite, I think, is the People's Court. Anybody like that one? Okay, some of you remember Judge Wampner back in the day, right? And now there's a lady on there, I don't know her name, but she's good too. Um, my favorite was always Judge Judy. Anybody like Judge Judy? Yeah, okay, yeah, all right. Well, the judges on those shows have something in common, uh, don't they? They, they, are, they are able to seemingly effortlessly uh, humiliate uh, grown men and women and make them look like disobedient little children. Um, yet I'm sure that if the Corinthians had the technology that we have, uh, they would have loved those shows too. Uh, the public airing of personal disputes makes for great theater, and that explains the huge audiences these shows have in our culture. Of course, it's, such a, it's, so, it's just as big on social media too, isn't it? airing personal disputes. It makes for lots of uh, views and lots of likes or dislikes. Now in Corinth, the legal disputes were aired in a large public building called a basilica. Uh, They were part of the city's forum, their town square. And whenever the court met, the public kind of gathered around to take in the spectacle And what the spectacle was, was these well-known townsfolk would get up, accuse each other of all kinds of different wrongdoing before the court, while another leading citizen would serve as the judge and make his ruling. And although the, the public airing of personal disputes attracted large audiences in cities like Corinth, the Apostle Paul sees this as yet another display of worldly wisdom that he must rebuke. If you've been following us along in this series, we've made our way through the first five chapters of this letter where Paul is dealing with a number of problems facing this particular congregation in the first century. Now, because of their lack of maturity and their love for Greek wisdom, human wisdom, The church has divided up into factions. Paul reminds them that the wisdom and the power of God revealed through the cross of Jesus Christ is a message that the contemporaries of their age regarded as foolishness. In fact, the contemporaries of our age still regard it as foolishness. But Paul tells them the foundation of the church is the gospel and the members of that church make up a living temple in which dwells the Spirit of God. And that is why the church must not be torn apart by divisions. And that explains why people who engage in openly scandalous behavior, like we saw in the last chapter, the man who had his father's wife, those kinds of people must be removed from the church. Now, yet another sign of spiritual immaturity in the Corinthian church is seen. It's seen in the fact that members of this congregation were taking each other to court to engage in this public, scandalous, 
spectacle of civil litigation. And he's just spoken of the judgment to come in uh, chapter 5 and verse 12. Uh, that is it, uh, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. So having just talked about the coming judgment for those who are put outside or those who are outside the church, I think this brings to the apostle's mind, it seems, in the flow of the thought of this letter, the situation that was probably reported to him by, you remember chapter 1, Chloe's people, uh, who had sent a report on to the apostle Paul, or he had received from someone else that there were church members that were suing each other in the city's public courts. Now, once again, it's very interesting to note here that Paul doesn't focus on the particulars of any lawsuits. He doesn't name any of the individuals involved here. In fact, if you look closely, the focus that Paul has hasn't really changed that much from chapter 5 to chapter 6. The issue in chapter 6 is still the failure of the Corinthian church to be the church, to be who they are in Jesus. As we look at these 11 verses here in our time this morning, we're going to hang these verses on two main ideas, thoughts, um, exhortations that Paul suggests in the text. And the first is this. In the first eight verses, do not take brothers or sisters to court. Do not take brothers or sisters to court. And I think Paul gives us at least three reasons in this text why this should not happen in the church of Jesus Christ. The first is found in verses 1 through 3, because you will judge the world. So let's start there. Paul takes up this this problem of civil litigation here in this opening part of chapter 6. And as I've noted, the Corinthians are settling their disputes with each other by going to the civil courts. Um, And Paul spells out the details here in verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Now, Paul, um, as we know, is a realist. Uh, He sees things as they are. He's He's not just pie in the sky. He knows full well that sinful people are going to have disputes with one another, uh, and we do. But the issue is, how do Christians settle these disputes whenever they come up? And Paul here is emphatic. There is no question here. There are no loopholes here. Any personal disputes arising among members of the Corinthian church must be settled within the church and not in the civil courts outside the church. Now, we need to have some clarification here, and Paul gives us that. Some of the terminology that he uses in this section, I think, is helpful for us to understand um, in knowing exactly what Paul is saying. Look, look at the word dare there in verse 1. The word dare, uh, that's translated dare, is a word that has the meaning of um, something like a person who has the audacity. So Paul's referring to, to conduct that is completely unacceptable for a Christian. It's shocking. How, how dare he? How, how does he have the audacity to do something like this as a member of the church? 
The word for grievance is a word that's used throughout all kinds of secular Greek literature at the time, the same time as the New Testament, to refer to a lawsuit. So this is, th- there's a distinction here between what we w- might call criminal cases and civil cases. This is dealing with only civil cases. This is dealing with people suing each other for money. That is what this is all about. Um, And the word translated unrighteous in verse 1 is simply people who are not justified, people who are non-Christians. Now, Paul doesn't say, and I want to be, be clear on this, he doesn't imply that secular courts have no authority. He doesn't say that. He does say that they're made up of the unrighteous. And the unrighteous people are not going to consider matters that affect Christians from the perspective of God's word, right? They're not going to do that. So it's not as though Christians can't obtain justice in civil courts. He's not saying that. But what he's saying is very clear and very specific. Christians have no business taking their personal disputes with other Christians before secular courts in the first place. And Paul's point is that these kind of disputes need to be settled in the church along the lines that were set forth by the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 18. Verses 15 through 20, Jesus prescribes to us that if someone sins against you, you seek them out personally and resolve the matter between the two of you before it goes any further. If that would fail, then there are additional steps which ultimately results in coming before the entire church to handle the matter. Throughout the book of Acts, uh, you'll remember Paul repeatedly appealed to Caesar Um, and the courts to protect him because of his Roman citizenship from the Jews that were trying to do him harm. And and in Romans, his letter to the Romans in chapter 13, Paul talks directly about the divine authority that is underneath civil government. And he also talks about the limitations that God puts on civil government. But Paul will not condone Christians taking other Christians to court over personal disputes. This was something the Jews were particularly stubborn about. They avoided the pagan courts altogether, never went to the pagan courts, uh, because Moses had given instructions in the law. In a number of passages, probably the most um, prominent is in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 9 through 18. We won't read those verses this morning, but jot it down and go look it up again later. Deuteronomy 1, 9 through 18. And Christians, Paul is saying, are to bring their personal disputes before the saints, before the people of the church, not before the pagans. Now, in order to live in peace in the church and to shine our light to those outside... Christians should not air their dirty laundry in public, period. That means, sorry, no appearances on Judge Judy between you and another Christian. There are a number of parallels here between the Greco-Roman culture of the time, 
in our own civil litigation today. Lawsuits were very common in Paul's time because the paganism of that age didn't believe or acknowledge any kind of moral absolutes. The pagans believed in fate or they believed in following whatever god they were paying money to or sacrificing to. And so those, particularly those of higher social status who could afford lawyers, could take advantage of the courts because the judges were often picked from that same group of people, the higher society people. Those of lower social status were at a great disadvantage in Corinth. In fact, there was a 14th century writer um, who was talking about the problem a uh, 4th century writer, rather, who was talking about the problem with the Isthmian Games. Do you remember we talked about that once before? It was the Corinthian version of the Olympics. They had their own set of games there. They called it the Isthmian, Isthmian Games uh, because Corinth was located, as you remember, on an isthmus, that piece of land connecting two other bodies of land. Um, and this writer noted about Corinth when he was writing about the games he wrote about the surrounding area, and this is what he said, quote, Corinth was filled with lawyers innumerable perverting justice. They were known for injustice in the court system, for perversion of justice. And obviously the same thing is true in our own day, isn't it? The decline of moral absolutes in our culture produces a decline in moral personal responsibility. And so given the absence of those absolutes, those ethical, those moral absolutes, given the absence in our culture of personal responsibility, we also see an increase in court action and lawyer action, in government power and intrusion into our private lives. And so if if people won't behave on their own, then the state will take over. The courts will make them behave. And in the way that they think they should. And so we drown ourselves in a sea of laws and regulations and litigation. And, and just as our culture today is highly sexualized, as we've seen before, as we'll see next week, just like Corinth's was, so too we live in a very litigious society, just like Corinth did. Verse 2, Paul asked the first of six very pointed questions in this passage. Do you or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? The the implication here is, is very simply that the Corinthians should know better than to do the things that they were doing. Going to civil court, suing each other many times over very trivial matters. And Paul begins this series of questions by reminding the Corinthians the reason they should take their dispute to the saints and not to the unbelievers is simply the fact that the, un- that the believers, the saints, will one day judge the world. Now this is probably an echo of what the Lord Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, where he said, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me, will all speaking to his disciples, will also sit on twelve thrones, 
judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, there are other passages in the New Testament that talk about the fact that we, as New Testament Christians, will assist these men in judging in the new world. Paul's point is is this. If Christians are able, or will be able, to assist in matters of judgment on a global scale, especially on the day of judgment, should they not be able to to judge in trivial matters and disputes in their own local church? It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. You will judge the world. Why can't you judge in your own church? Verse 3, do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? He does the same thing here. Not only will believers take part in the judgment of the world, they're even going to take part in the judgment of angelic beings. Now that's a statement that's not found anywhere else in Scripture. Only here. But it may fit with what Paul says later on in chapter 15, verses 24 to 28, when he talks about how basically at the end, all things will be subject to Christ. And so those who are in Christ are going to be with him placed over all things, which would include the angels. And if that's true, if that's true that one day you and I will participate in judging angelic beings, How can you not judge the things of this life? You will judge the world? You will judge angels? Surely, you can judge yourselves. Surely, you can take care of the minor issues. Well, that's the first reason why um, Christians should not take Christians to court. Because you will judge the world. Secondly, notice in verses 4 through 6, it's because you can display godly wisdom rather than human wisdom. Paul continues, So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Now when you read this in English, it sounds like it might be a hypothetical situation. If you have such cases. But the word if here can, there's different classes of condition in the Greek language, and this use of the word if carries with it the implication that lawsuits should never arise in the first place. It's, it's like Paul was saying, so if you have such cases and you never should, that's the idea. The point is, if the Corinthians are submitting their personal disputes to those who are outside the church, they're submitting their disputes to people who don't have the mind of Christ to judge these matters. So again, it's not a question of whether or not the secular court is incompetent to judge. It's not a matter of the secular world's incompetence. The fact of the matter is, Christians have no business taking their personal disputes outside the church in the first place. If we are suited to judge the world with Christ, we should be able to settle our personal differences apart from a secular court. Paul says we should do this. But then he goes on to give the reason for raising this point. He says, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? 
Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14, Paul had written, he didn't want to shame his readers. This is what he says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. But now, in chapter 6, the story's different. At least when it comes to Christians suing other Christians. Now, Paul wants to say, shame on you. Remember, the the Corinthians prided themselves on their great wisdom. And Paul is sarcastically pointing out here that given their attitude, given their love of worldly wisdom, how can there not even be one person as wise as they are, they think, how can there not even be one person in their church wise enough to make these decisions? By going to the secular courts, Christians, Corinthians, are subjecting themselves to judges who are drinking deeply from the well of worldly wisdom, the wisdom of the age, which Paul has been exhorting the Corinthians to reject. The phrase here, to settle, um, in verse 6, the word to settle, or verse 5 here, the word to settle here means something like to decide. To, make, to come to a, a decision, it implies the idea of arbitration among believers. Not litigation, not lawsuits in a secular court. He wants brothers to solve their own problems. And he does so because he believes, as we should believe, in the unity of the church, which is founded in our union with Jesus Christ. And he's going to say that very specifically here in just a few verses. Notice the next verse. Brother, to, or brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? For Paul, it is shocking that a Christian could bring another member of the church family into one of those secular courts in the forum in Corinth to sue them in front of the crowds, in front of unbelievers. How can a Christian even bring that kind of matter out in the open before unbelievers? It's shocking to Paul. Paul's not asking us to hide our sins. He's not saying that we suppress, you know, oh, there's something bad going on in the church. We don't want it to get out. He's not saying that. He's not saying we don't call the police if one of our children are abused or if one of our wives are abused by a husband or vice versa. He's not saying that we don't get authorities involved for appropriate criminal activity. He's saying that we don't hide our sins from unbelievers. He's saying that the cross of Jesus Christ is God's solution to all of these problems associated with human sinfulness, especially these trivial disputes that we have with one another. We can display godly wisdom by not taking our brothers and sisters to court. Notice thirdly, a third reason, verses 7 and 8, because you would reveal unrighteousness. Paul wants us to stop. He wants us to stop, so he puts it very directly. Look at verse 7. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not? rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? To take a brother to secular court is already a defeat 
regardless of the outcome of the legal process. doesn't matter who wins and who loses. It's already a defeat because it's bringing shame on the church. Paul's saying it would be better for an individual to just be wronged or just be cheated than to risk bringing shame to Christ's body by taking these personal disputes before these kinds of courts. The Corinthians apparently never considered this because so many of them are involved in these shady pagan business dealings with one another. Look, look what he says. You yourselves, Paul says, wrong and defraud even your own brothers. So not only are members of the church engaging in this kind of fraudulent behavior, but some are victims of cheating and fraud from their own church members. The real scandal associated with all of this is the fact that church members are inflicting wrongdoing on their fellow Christians, on their fellow brothers and sisters whom Jesus died for. And it's shocking. And it has to stop. Paul's basically saying, look, you might expect this outside the church. You might expect this when you turn on Judge Judy. You might expect it there. But you shouldn't expect it within the church. And again, Paul being the pastor that he is, he doesn't give us the particulars of the various situations. He doesn't mention the names of any of the people involved. Although, probably everybody in the church knew who it was and what was going on. But he does give us a very general principle to follow here, doesn't he? Christians must settle their personal disputes with other Christians without going to courts. This is what we do do. This is a sign of who we are in Jesus. So don't take brothers to court. The second main point is found in verses 9 through 11. It's do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. And two thoughts here that I want to look at. First, unrepentant sinners are doomed in verses 9 and 10. And then wonderfully in verse 11, transformed sinners are delivered. Unrepentant sinners are doomed. Verses 9 and 10. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You know, I don't think that the issue in the Corinthian church was confusion over what the gospel was. It was the inability of the members of the church of Corinth to filter out of their lives the old pagan ways of thinking and doing. They didn't put off what needed to be put off when they came to Christ. Paul's use of the word unrighteous here points to a person's status before God. People who engage in this kind of behavior without repentance will not inherit the kingdom of God. I think we know most of what these sins are. Most of them are the same sins here mentioned by Paul back in chapter 5 and verse 11. 
where he he told us not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. And it's unfortunate the way um, it's worded there. When it talks about homosexuality, I want to make sure that it's clear here. Uh, The ESV says, nor men who practice homosexuality. There are two terms there in that phrase. And basically, uh, the terms represent a passive partner and an active partner in a same-sex relationship. So this is not limited to male homosexuals. That's what I want to say. The wording here is very specific that it's relating to active and passive partners in same-sex relationship. It doesn't say male at all in the original language here. So... So it, so it doesn't leave women out here when it comes to this sin, all right? I wanted to be clear on that. So this is this, these are the same sins that Paul mentions earlier. And the linkage here of these various kinds of sexual sins, along with idolatry, show us that there is a highly likely association here of these practices with pagan worship which was certainly true in Corinth. We talked about the temple before of Aphrodite with a thousand priestess prostitutes that served there. We know that the people um, who live in Corinth were well acquainted with the mixture of sexual sin and pagan worship. Paul's saying the people who practice these will not make it to the kingdom of God. We know this, right? Because of what Paul goes on to say in verse 11. And that is transformed sinners like you and I are delivered. Praise be to God. This isn't Paul's final word to the Corinthians. We're glad he didn't stop after verse 10, aren't we? The final word is given in verse 11. Because the gospel has been preached to the Corinthians. The power of God has been on display in their church. The grace of God has produced wonderful results. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul's language here makes it clear. There's a dramatic contrast between what the Corinthians now are, or should be, because of the preaching of the gospel, in light of what they were before their conversion. Some of the Corinthians, some of the members of the church were sexually immoral, idolaters. Some were adulterers and prostitutes. Some were homosexual offenders. Some were greedy. Some were revilers, drunkards, liars, swindlers. And based on the list, I think it's clear some of these people may have been deeply involved in pagan religion. Some of these people may have been workers in the pagan temples, which are basically brothels. Some went before the court and were suing fellow church members to defraud them, to swindle them. But something happened that should have changed everything for them. Now these same people who were like that have been washed, have been sanctified, have been justified in the name of Christ. That's through the preaching of the gospel. That's through the power of the Holy Spirit that was witnessed among them. 
And since this is what they are now, how can they continue to act like those who aren't going to inherit the kingdom of God? By engaging in immorality and all these other vices. How can they live like that? And Paul's saying, they can't. Because they're different now. And Paul takes some time here to list some of the many benefits that result from embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's look at them briefly. Washed. Washed. The first of these benefits is that you were washed. The original language here shows that this is a completed and decisive action. It's not that you're in the process of being washed. No, you were washed. It happened. It's done. Some people take this to refer to baptism. Paul doesn't mention baptism here specifically. He does often refer to washing in his letters associated closely with the blood of Christ, referring to the forgiveness of sins. In any case, baptism mentioned or not, I don't think it's referring to baptism here. It's clear the Corinthians were washed completely, definitively, and as so they are now clean. The guilt of their sin has been removed from them as far as the east is from the west. God no longer treats them as he did before. They're washed. Second, they're sanctified. And here again, Paul uses language to show the Corinthian believers have been set apart by God for his own purposes. It's happened. They've been set on a new path. And that's what we call definitive sanctification. It's what happened at the moment of our conversion. We also teach progressive sanctification. That's day by day becoming more and more like Jesus Christ, continuing to repent and put off old ways and put on new ways. That's progressive sanctification. What Paul is talking about here is what happened at the moment of our conversion. We were set apart as his, set apart as holy before God. We believed in Christ's saving benefits and the guilt of our sin removed forever. Heaven is now our home, not earth. God is now our Father. Living for the glory of Christ is now our purpose. We have been adopted, placed into the family of God. We have been marked by God to become like Jesus over the course of this life and then into eternal life. Third benefit, justified. This too, a completed action. It happened at the moment you were saved. All believers, at the moment of their salvation, are restored from, to a right standing before God. We were enemies. When we are justified, we become friends. Just like that in a moment. It happens. We are regarded now as righteous, as Jesus himself is righteous. And that happened at the moment when we were saved. In God's sight, we are declared not guilty. Not because we aren't guilty, but because Jesus took our sins on the cross and credited us with his righteousness. All of these blessings come to us 
by virtue of our union with Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Great blessings. I'll ask the praise team to come back. We'll sing our final song here in a moment. As they're coming, what should be our takeaway from this passage this morning? And and I hope that you'll discuss this further in your ABF classes, but I'll just give you a head start. Paul insists here that the Corinthians must not defraud one another anymore. And they must follow the teaching of Jesus by settling personal disputes within the church. Yes, courts and lawyers have their place. Yes, they do. But when personal disputes arise between Christians, we need to seek resolution with each other inside the church. That means no appearances on Judge Judy. No appearances on on the people's court with other believers. In verses 9 through 11, Paul contrasts what the Corinthians were with what they now are. What are they? Washed. Sanctified. Set apart. Justified. Not guilty. Before God. And brothers and sisters, the reason that this is the case is because of the death of Jesus Christ our Savior that it removed from us all of the guilt of our sin and because Christ's perfect righteousness is credited to us through faith. And that means there is no sin and there is no sinner so vile that he cannot be redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Paul knew that himself, didn't he? And it also means that once we are in Christ, we are no longer what we were. Some of us, brothers and sisters, were sexually immoral. Some of us were idolaters. Some of us were revilers and swindlers and greedy. But not anymore. At least we shouldn't be anymore. We are now Christians. And Paul says, live like it. Live like it. Let's stand together, brothers and sisters. Let's close by singing a song of praise to our sweet Jesus for the washing that he accomplishes in our life through his precious blood.